Well, hey, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. This is Lisa Anderson with you, and hopefully you survived Valentine's Day. You know we tried to help you out by putting together a great show for that. But now we're heading into the end of February, and so we're going to circle back to dating with a really fun topic today. But first of all, uh, later on in the show, we have a girl who is battling some pretty serious mental health issues, and she's wondering, is she going to be able to handle the struggles that come with marriage? Should she even pursue marriage? And so our counselor, Tim Sanford, is going to provide some insights. And then for our culture segment, our friend Josh Zychik has been on The Boundless Show a number of times. Um, But today he's actually going to talk about a program that he works with every day at Focus on the Family, and it's called The Focused Pastor. And so he's going to provide some insights on how to support your pastor, what to look for in a good pastor, how to avoid red flags. And so hopefully that'll be really practical for you. Okay, for today's roundtable, I alluded to the fact that we're going to talk about dating. Specifically, we're going to talk about dating someone from a different cultural background. And so this is going to be a fun conversation conversation because I have two married couples represented. I have got uh, Jeff and Jolie Brown. Hey, you two. Good to have you here. All right. And then uh, Kim Flynn, my good friend, is here as well. Hey, Kim. Hey, how are you? Good. Okay. So this is going to be fun because um, I think it's hilarious as I was thinking about this, how most of us think that we're super chill and we're the most flexible people in the world and like, oh, I just love different cultures. I mean, I even had Indian food the other night, you know, <laughs> and it's all just <laughs> roses and rainbows until you're up in someone's business and you're actually having to learn, adjust, be like, hey, what's up with that? Oh, that's your opinion on that. And so cultural differences can certainly play into that. And so I want each of you to kind of give your experience with treading into some of the cultural nuances tell a little of your story who you married why you married them and uh, then what were kind of some of the things that you saw as differences even immediately so Jeff why don't you start us since you're the minority here as far as gender (laughs) we're going to give you a little a little time yes I actually grew up overseas in uh, Latin America and uh, when I came of adult and I couldn't find my wife I kept on asking the Lord and asking the Lord and lo and behold I used to pray uh, Lord why can't you just give me a friend and for five years Jolie was sitting on the other side of the wall <laughs> and uh, we began to talk one time and just hit it off in a different way and the walls came down and the rest is history <laughs> those were my walls <laughs> <laughs> those were her walls Okay. and I had to get this entangled first too but um, yeah we uh, communicated really well Jolie had spent a lot of time in the U.S., and I felt she was just like another friend from L.A., and I think that she thought I was just another friend from Latin America, and we were going to sail off into the you know, the sunset quite fine. And uh, we started realizing early on that if we were going to discuss things, I should probably speak English, and she should probably speak Spanish. Mm-hmm. And it's just the, the communication issues are there, and you don't you can't cut them out. They're there, and uh, it's, it's good to, to go with the language of the heart. So... Okay, so that's interesting you say that, Jeff, because like you said, I mean, I think you were born in California, right? Mm -hmm, But you grew up in South America. So most people would assume, oh, hadn't you already made that cultural transition? I mean, you're practically like South America and whatever. (laughs) Okay, so what would you say? What was tricky from the get go from your perspective? Well, I, I think the probably the biggest thing is family. Mm. And it's funny enough, my family, we were in Latin America, and when we came to the States, we were spread all the way across the States. 
Jolie's family came from Paraguay, and they're all here. We're, I mean, we're, we, we live together almost. I mean, we've got quite very, not even a mile away, you know. And so we do a lot of things together. And Jolie often likes to say, for those who are listening, that, you know, she puts her hand right in front of her face. That's how we are, you know. You're, we're that close. <laughs> and you know what? We gringos, we like our space. Mm-hmm. So probably that's probably one of the bigger issues that we've had to tackle through. Okay. Jolie, how about you? Tell it from your perspective as far as what was... What were you comfortable with? And then what was a little bit like, oh, this is going to be something to overcome? Yeah. And I believe that that exactly what you believe. It's like, oh, yeah, I always wanted to marry a white American that speaks Spanish. I got it in Jeff. And I was like, oh, great. we are going to be like this. And then I really did not know how much of that pack mentality I have, which is it's from the Latin culture. We we think in packs. Uh, we stick our spoon in everybody's soup, <laughs> and that if nobody, literally. yeah, okay. and that literally and also yeah, <laughs> issue wise, uh-huh. right? And so, um, and Jeff, even though he speaks beautiful Spanish, um, and with my mom and everything else, he's very involved. He's very friendly, uh, but he does need. He needs his space, mm-hmm. and I had a hard time believing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've been married 19 years, and our communication's still <laughs> rocky. Uh, okay. And so, and we learn like that. Okay, good. And okay. Ca- and can I add? I mean, yeah. I have got a saint of a mother-in-law, uh-huh. and still, you know, my pack <laughs> mentality is not there. So it's it's yeah. not bad. It, it's You're really like, good. okay, I'm seriously talking to my mother-in-law again. Here she's in my life. Okay, this is like day four. No, that's great. All right, Kim, let's bring you into the conversation. Tell a little of your story and uh, what you felt, you know, was going to be pretty easy to overcome and what were some of the initial challenges. So I guess my initial challenges um, really started long before I met my husband, Tom. And uh, Tom and I met 20 years before we started dating. Hmm. So we met through my cousin, um, his family uh, knew my cousin. Tom's mother passed before I actually started dating Tom, so I never met her. But his father um, was pretty low-key. So I went over there Easter. We drove up to Fort Collins, met with his family, and sat down for dinner, and that went really well. And he was super protective mm-hmm. of me. But my um, challenges really weren't challenges. They were more of my father stepping in years before And he was concerned that he had raised me in the wrong place. So they were from the South and they raised me in Colorado. And so because of that, he was concerned that there weren't enough African-American people for me to choose from. And he was (laughs) always wanting to make sure, like, did we do the right thing? Do we need to send you away to college or do you want to stay here? And I said, you know, my cousins who live in that environment they were not having any better luck finding anyone to marry than I was at the time. As you know, I'm kind of a long-term single person, but finally getting married um, in my 40s, well, just before I turned 40. So that's kind of where it started in a discussion with my parents long before I actually started dating someone who was of a different race. Okay. So where did Tom grow up? And and I mean, I know, I mean, we'll tell listeners, you know, Tom's white, but is he like super white or what's his... Like, like, how white is Tom? Like, where's it? Where's his background as far as like where he grew up? He is, um, he's pretty white. He's Irish. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, there you go. So, yeah. Um, he sunburns rather quickly. He's so My white twenty minute pink. tan. He's sunburning. He's burnt. Okay. But he's from Boulder, Colorado, mm-hmm. and so 
really his father had moved the family back and forth around the country doing space and cryogenics and things like that. Mm -hmm. So that's really where he came from. His background, he was Catholic, but it wasn't something that he had grown attached to. And Mm -hmm. so in his college years, he ended up giving his life to Christ. And so when we began dating, we were really looking to date someone who um, knew Jesus and knew of a personal relationship. And that really is what brought us together way more than wanting to date someone outside of our race. Mm -hmm. It was more of wanting to date someone who knew Jesus. Mm -hmm. And that was our real focus. Yeah. Okay. No, that's great. Okay, so I want to back it up a little bit because I think this is interesting. Um, Jolie alluded to this, but I want everyone to answer this. Like, describe the person that you originally thought you would date and marry. So, Jeff, when you pictured yourself, say, college-age guy, who did you think you would marry? Don't get me in trouble. But, I know. Uh, <laughs> I, you know what? Yeah. I really was just like, Lord, just send me your favorite daughter. Okay. Just, you know, I don't really care. Uh, Jesus loves the little children of the world, right? So mm-hmm. anybody's good and uh, what he's got is best. And so I, I do feel that he did. Okay. But, uh, yeah, I don't have any preconceived ideas there. Oh, that's okay. That's good to know. How about you, Kim? If you would have painted the picture of your future spouse, who would he have been? Besides a rock star, very well. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. I think I had pictured somebody with dark curly hair, mm-hmm. but I honestly didn't know much more than that. Okay. Um, yeah. Sorry. Okay. No, that's good. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about what would you say? I mean, uh, dating, marrying someone with a different cultural perspective. I mean, now, Kim, kind of coming back to you to pick up on where you were talking about before, do you feel like it's good that you grew up in Colorado because that helped kind of soften some of the differences a little bit. I mean, as opposed to your dad saying, oh, I wish, I mean, it sounds like you and your dad have a lot of cultural differences. He's like, you need to be more Southern. Okay. Um, What do you feel like how that played into it? Um, I really think that living in Colorado and I mean, I attended predominantly white community schools, public school. You know, there were a few African-American students Um, and my classes as well. But I think I felt like I met enough people throughout that course of of time. Mm -hmm. You know, I I guess the struggle really was if there was one other black guy in my class, everybody always paired me with that (laughs) one other person. Mm -hmm. So it was almost a forced thing like, oh, look, there's someone like you. You guys (laughs) must go together. Mm -hmm. And that was more of the struggle than like, trying to date someone outside of my race because everybody was always trying to put me with someone inside of my race. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was kind of funny. And, you know, as I grew older, I went on blind dates with, you know, friends. Oh, I'm going to set you up with this black guy. You guys will get along great. And, you know, they were nice and things like that. But I guess back to how we, the things that brought us together were really those things that were spiritual. Yeah. And that really you build that foundation on that will carry you through the long the long run. Mm -hmm. I mean, my husband and I, I think the funniest thing for us is that he's white and I'm black. He likes chocolate ice cream. I like (laughs) vanilla ice cream. He likes chocolate cake. I like (laughs) vanilla cake. I mean, so some of those things, I wonder if they were built in, like, so the Lord made us attracted to the things that were opposite, but Mm -hmm. yet those things that brought us together were the things that were unnegotiable. Yeah. 
No, that's good. Okay. What would you say, what are some of the things that you've encountered uh, since being married that you really realize is something that you've had to grow in? Like maybe it was something you didn't expect. I mean, obviously, you know, Jeff and Jolie, you were talking a little bit about the whole the pack mentality versus the loner (laughs) kind of that Mm -hmm. construct. Are there other things that you're just like, I will forever have to kind of lay myself down in this area because this is just not who I am personality wise or some of the other tension points that come with culture? We speak all over each other. So you're talking and I'm I'm trying to say something already. And uh, I've lived in this country longer than I lived in my in my country of origin. And I still have that very ingrained. So I have offended Jeff for years and decades, <laughs> I would say. We're not two decades here, but more than a decade mm-hmm. because he's trying to communicate and I'm already there trying <laughs> to have a conversation because for us conversation is this pattern and so for Jeff is like this you wait you wait and and that's just part of of being uh respectful and to me that just doesn't translate respectful and uh and so he's stopped me and he's been so patient but sometimes not so much because you know 19 years and I'm still talking over him and so um that has been very hard uh for me mm-hmm. uh, to adapt and it's so funny because the opposites attract like you were saying you know and and i love her vivaciousness we've all i mean when we were all one big group and where we started working together i mean everybody was just talking over each other it was a big party all day long it was great but um just something kim said about the the, the way that god has pulled us together you know, you have these expectations of what your spiritual life should look like and how you should interact with God and how, especially working at Focus on the Family, how a good couple should come before the Lord together. And I've even had people talk to me about, you guys really need to pray together. It's the hardest thing in the world. (laughs) It is so hard because you have your way that you're going to talk to the Lord and they have their way, their understanding of what is a a good um, way to engage with the church and and different spiritual disciplines and that kind of thing. And so you have to recognize that even though you have the best up, especially in this day and age, oh, but our family was great and we serve the Lord, you have to understand that your way of serving the Lord is slightly different than everybody else's and that you will have some challenges against it. Mm -hmm. And I think that comes with any marriage because every person comes from a world just from their own home and we all comes with filters it's mm-hmm. just that when we're from different cultures our filters are more obvious mm-hmm. yeah that's good yeah i spoke with my husband about this uh, particular round table and i asked him what was the one thing that he really had to adjust to um getting married to an african-american and um he said it was the hair the hair care (laughs) products how much hair uh cost you know don't touch her hair don't mess with the fro you got to go you know (laughs) so there um, for him that's what was the most startling Mm -hmm. um but since then he just kind of rolls with it Uh you know there have been times when i've been getting my hair braided and he had to bring me McDonald's because it took like nine hours for this lady to braid my hair. And so I called him, can you bring me some McDonald's? And he shows up at the door and all of these African women just go, whoosh, look at him. And then they're like, what are you here for? And he's like, boldly bringing this McDonald's. I'm here for my wife. And they're like, oh. And then the conversation inside of the shop changes. Everybody's like, she's really quiet. 
You know, they're like, there's a white man in the midst. Don't say anything. And they didn't know how to respond. Uh So that's been one of the challenges for us is just that instant, like, you see someone who's white Mm -hmm. with someone who's black and people responding to that. They're like looking at you like, what are you guys doing together? Mm -hmm. So, Well, it's probably, I mean, do you feel like, especially in contexts like that, that you have to kind of tell your story over and over again, like explain like, oh, it's okay. He's with me. We actually got married. I grew up in color. It's yes. like you have to go. Yeah. Yeah. We've had to explain that many times. I we were time we were getting on an airplane and my parents were with us and they were in wheelchairs and we were pushing them on. And uh, my parents went ahead and I went and the lady stopped my husband. And I looked back and I'm like, no, no, he's with us. This is my husband. <laughs> so we explain it many times throughout our lives. And that's probably the hardest thing is to always be looking out for the other person. Right. You do that naturally in their care and things like that. But when you have to look out for them so that people understand that you're together it's a little different than I would imagine if you, I can't imagine, you know, being two white people and just going through the line and nobody questioning it. Because we always get questioned whether we go to Walmart or mm-hmm. whatever. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, in light of that, kind of some of the, the stereotypes that you have or that are easy to have about the other person or their family and how have you had to overcome those? Because I think it's it's easy to take that in. Even, again, I'm looking at Jeff, for someone who has the language, I'm guessing that it was very easy for you to take in even knowing a Latin culture from the get-go, like, okay, I'm going to have to be prepared for this or here's this or this is how she's going to be. It's very easy to stereotype one another. And how have those been manifest and how have you broken stereotypes in that sense? I don't know that I have. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's a hard question, to be absolutely honest. I mean, in one sense, we talk a lot about race around our family, and we we, we just discuss stuff very openly. And um, for the most part, you know, it's like, hey, you know, uh, in Latin America, we do race pretty well. So there's uh, racism between uh, Indian tribes and non-Indian tribes. We we talk through that and understand that, but there's a lot of getting along, too. Especially uh, on the borders, you know, between Brazil and, and uh, Paraguay, Argentina. And so in all that, you know what? When people say, I like, you started this segment so well, I, I love, cult. Yeah. you know what? Missionary kids are not exempt. Uh, third culture kids are not exempt. Well, we grew up over there. You grew up over there in a context. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I, I have seen that my understanding of how I grew up, you know, I was friends with all these folks. All these, all these, all these, all these kids that were my age, I had a quite a, a different upbringing than they did, mm-hmm. and so when I think about that, and I've always been part of the Hispanic population, um, I've realized and that, that that has changed actually my view of who uh, Jolie is and who her family is, and I've had to understand that there's some things there to break as well, some stereotypes to break there as well. One of the things that's hard for me is uh, when my friends here don't a couple different uh, circumstances my friends have had a little bit difficulty with uh, my brother-in-law or somebody like that you know where I'm I'm bringing them into the picture well it's a different cultural context and and one of the biggest things is I my my brother-in-law ran a complete um, IT house and and built the Citibank put in a big building and he did all the infrastructure for it and when he's here trying to find a job in in the US his place that he can find is is a uh, uh, what was a help desk at that point. And you're like, this guy's run crews that, you know, mm-hmm. 
But it, it's that whole idea of having two different understandings of who you are and who you've been and who is, is part of your family now. Mm-hmm. That's good. And for me, I think that the, the biggest thing is that I try to accommodate so much to Jeff and to what I thought that he will want. And um, through the years and, and with a lot of work and insight also for, from friends, I didn't do him a favor uh, because the more we continue and we really work because being cultural doesn't mean that it's good. And so it's like we have discussed this is good. This is where we want our family to go and this one not. And so we try to develop that individual person so that it enriches the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we're, we're starting that path. Yeah, now. that's great. Um, I think some of the stereotypes that um, my husband and I talk about and we um, kind of observe, it's not just us. So we are a black female and a white male. And that's relatively accepted in the white community. But if I were a white female and he was a black male, it would be less acceptable because of some of the history that America's had. So um, those are some of the stereotypes that raise themselves, I guess. I think the other stereotype is that we would be up to no good. You know, and that uh, we would have to be watched closely when we shop. Um, But we've really tried to make a community where we go. Um, And then even people in the stores, you know, they say, oh, they come often. These aren't these aren't those people. Mm. So not only are we breaking stereotypes racially, but we're we're Christians. Right. We represent God in wherever we go. So no matter where we are, we should be reflecting the light of Christ. Mm-hmm. And and so that, I think, overtakes some of those stereotypes that we might face. Mm-hmm. Okay. So getting back kind of just as our last question here, um, kind of going back to where I started of the, the people who are very starry-eyed, like this is all going to be so easy. This person's so exotic. They're amazing. I'm just going to learn so much about them and myself. What would be your advice to couples that that are dating interculturally, that are getting to know someone, that are saying like, hey, this might actually work, but I haven't really introduced this person to my family yet or what that looks like? What are some things that they should be aware of? Uh, first of all, I look for somebody exotic and she's totally exotic and it's, <laughs> it's great. There's so much fun in cross-cultural it's so much fun. I mean, we we fight really well. We have fun. We I mean, it just it's it has been a, a blast. And um, so there's all kinds of good. And it's really hard. You're in the middle of the romantic relationship. You're not thinking straight. And so this is one more thing that hey, you're just rushing headlong. It's just just neat because it's different. When that wears off, and it and it does wear off. When that wears off, you'd better have something behind that where you're. I mean, I I used to when I was dating somebody um, before I before I started dating Jolie. I, my mom would come into town. I was talking to her, and they'd come back from a party where Jolie was at. And I'm like, why am I always comparing so-and-so with Jolie? Hmm. And I was like, ding. You know, and there's something <laughs> there because uh, there's just gold inside, you know. And so you you need to know that um, that God is opening that door because mm-hmm. there will be some issues. And um, I th- there will be some, some strong issues, I believe, um, whether it's with family. Even, even as good a family as you have, there will be issues with family. As good of friends you have, there will be issues with friends. 
there will be issues in your context where um, you're, you're, hey, we're having fun here. We're totally accepted. And they pick up on an undertone of a little bit of bias. Mm-hmm. And you've got to figure out what to do. Mm-hmm. And so there's, and then even just with, with, with your kids and stuff, you have to walk through with your kids. So it's, it's really worthwhile to ask all the questions and make sure all your uh, people that feed into your life are, are answering those pretty, pretty frankly for you. Mm-hmm. I think you have to be open to learning, continually learning, you know, willingness to step out and try something new, to go visit places you've never been before, um, step into their extended family. You know, our extended family is in the South and to step into that together, you know, there's some risk just for travel um, in that area of the country, but then there's still that constant learning and just being accepting and open to the people that you meet, the relatives that you meet, and then developing relationship with them. I mean, you're developing a relationship, like you said, with the one that you love, but you're also developing a relationship with the extended family. And that does take some finesse. Mm -hmm. You are representing your culture to that new group of people. And when they trust you, then they begin to trust a little bit further into not every person like you is, like you said, a stereotypical Mm -hmm. human in that regard. I think it also, um, Kim, would have helped you if you would have told Tom straight up how much that hair was going to cost so that he knew what he was getting into, the investment, right? investment. the time. It's an investment. <laughs> exactly. So he knew how to process that beforehand. But, uh, you know, that's okay. It's, well, you know, you've worked are, it out. There are things that I did tell him beforehand. When we got married, I said, I just want to tell you this because I love you. These are things that even though you are married to a black person and you have a license you cannot say these particular oh. phrases and words <laughs> mm-hmm. because they it doesn't matter mm-hmm. right you mm-hmm. it's a it's an offense mm-hmm. so we we've both had to learn like what things we can and cannot say even though we have that openness between the two of us okay good point anything to add jolly well um second corinthians in the message version says do not be mismatched with unbelievers. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't say don't marry um, across cultures. Mm-hmm. And because our as believers, our first culture is the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And so I really like how much you stress, Kim. And because when I am at odds with Jeff, what I know is that my first loyalty is to the Lord. And that helps me calm down and think things through and work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that First culture is the kingdom Mm -hmm. and learning and knowing that you're not mismatched Mm -hmm. is going to make it's going to take you through. That's great. You guys, thank you so much for weighing in on this. This is such a great conversation and hopefully an encouragement to the folks who are listening um, because it's just neat stuff. Thanks for letting us into your lives. Sure. Thank Thank you.
Well, hey, folks, uh, we are here for this week's culture segment where I get to interview a friend and colleague, uh, always a colleague. The friend kind of goes in and out depending on the day. It's totally dependent. But you know him as well because he's been here on The Boundless Show many times. We utilize him for so many things. Um, it is our friend Josh Zychik. Josh, good friend to have to you some, here. Friend some, enemy to others. I was like, I feel like you're one of those guys that I'm like, uh, Josh, we're going to be talking about, and then it's just fill in the blank. Anything. Can you <laughs> jump over here? You know, we're we're talking about pride this week, and mm-hmm. you came to mind. Can mm-hmm. you please fill in for... Uh, we're talking so- about men under six foot and how that should affect the dating relationship. <laughs> hey, if it fits, and there's always good stuff there. So, all right. But today, we're actually talking about something that is near and dear to your heart, um, because you are very much involved. In fact, are you finished with your doctorate program or you're getting close? Real close. I'm, I've just turned in the first four chapters of my dissertation. Okay. So. In in biblical counseling. Biblical counseling with an emphasis um, on pastoral ministry. Okay. Yeah. So very cool. Well, and a little closer to home, you are the director of church engagement here at Focus on the Family and the brand being the focused pastor Mm -hmm. and um, a lot going on there in relationship with pastors and churches uh, across the U.S. primarily. But we thought it would be really fun because we talk a lot about church here at Boundless and the value of the church, the importance of being plugged into a local church, even a member of a local church. We're big fans of that. And so we thought it would be a good conversation to talk about pastors and our relationship to pastors, especially in the wake of what seems now several years of pastors blowing up in the media under various lenses mm-hmm. for moral failures, for you know just egregious behavior in many different levels at the denominational level, at the individual church level. And so pastors, we love you. Um, so we want to give you some cred here. And Josh is going to be the one to do that. So uh, you also write a fair amount, speak as well. You are very involved in your church, mm-hmm. um, especially with young adults. So that's another reason I like you. Yeah. So All right. Well, let's start talking about this. I would love to have you talk a little bit about reasonable expectations. I feel like we get questions from a lot of young adults of like, I've attended this church for like seven weeks and the pastor is super boring, but I think he's preaching the Bible. So should I just stay or whatever? And there's kind of this malaise around it. And so, I mean, it's almost like especially post pandemic where isolation levels have been so high, we have even more expectations of pastors, elders, churches, and stuff. But what would you say, what what generally should a pastor, being employed by a church, leading a flock of people, be doing, for lack of a better phrase? Yeah, you're, well, you're asking the right question because in an isolated time, I mean, it, just in a media level that we live in now, you have access to all the best of the best preachers. Mm-hmm. Um Piper and Tony Evans or whoever, whoever, Mm -hmm. Matt Chandler, names that just stick out Mm -hmm. um, as your guy. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love me some Kevin DeYoung or whatever. Mm -hmm. And these are great gifts to the church, right? People who preach the word and know how to bring complexity to simplicity and help us understand and apply the word of God. It's it is a blessing. But your average local pastor who's probably pastoring a church of under 200 people isn't that skilled. And and frankly, doesn't have to be to be faithful. So the first thing you got to have as an expectation is faithfulness. Does he preach the word of God 
accurately and faithfully. And then it's on you as a congregant to be the noble Berean who says, when I come home and I read the scriptures and I see what I was just taught, this aligns, this is accurate. So I think that's first off is a commitment to the word of God and teaching it. And that can be chapter by chapter. That could be at times topical, whatever, but they're preaching God's word, not just their own opinion, their own hobby horse. Um, I think if we start there, that'd be really important. Then I think a commitment to the church, and that looks like a lot of things. You know, pastors, they go on visitation when people are sick. Uh, they visit those new babies uh, and, the, and the new parents. Um, they take care of people. They're there to listen. If you have a pastor who's only really interested in what some have called the front stage, that, that experience of being on stage, having a captive audience, there's a problem. But when you see that pastor in the community and loving people and sitting down and weeping with those who weep and discipling uh, the younger generation or a group of people, like that is pastoring, Mm -hmm. the hard work of life on life ministry. So I I think that's how you evaluate your pastor, have the expectation that they're committed to God's word, they're committed to the church, and then on some level committed to those outside the church, um, committed to the lost. That is one of the motivations that a pastor should have for even being in the ministry is a love for the lost. Um, that can look like a lot of different ways. It could be maybe they're committed to visiting every single new person that comes to the church. They find the address, they bring them a meal, they bring them coffee. Maybe that's a more of a production as far as like an evangelistic program at, at the church. It could be all sorts of things like that. Um, just finding ways to love the community. But They need to have a love for the word, a love for the church, and a love for the lost. Okay. So what about, speaking of that, kind of the average U.S. church, which so many of our listeners are attending right now, and the pastor really does wear so many hats. But what if he's, because I hear this a lot, I feel like, oh, it's he seems to really love people and he wants to visit everyone in the church and he's carrying, you know, visiting the widows and whatnot, but... He's just not really a great preacher. Mm. Well, how do you weigh? I mean, because, again, you can't have some superstar that's going to be good at everything. So how do you weigh, like, I mean, percentage-wise or whatever, what's important, what you can hang with, and what you can't? Yeah, If they're all good things, but maybe not in the same measure. Yeah, no, and you see that, right? Some Like, that guy, he is a great uh, shepherd. Mm-hmm. He loves people, but his gifting in the pulpit's not as strong. Mm-hmm. Um, you see that all the time. And... I pastored a very small church when we, my wife and I planted a church years ago, and I never considered my preaching to be those Kevin DeYoung levels mm-hmm. or those John MacArthur <laughs> levels or whatever. I'm grateful for people like that to aspire to, to help push my skill set. But that is one task. And, and reality is the preaching of God's word, faithfulness to that is, again, taking the word, accurately explaining it and helping people learn to apply it. That's the public proclamation of God's word. There's also the private proclamation of God's word, which is sitting in the office or sitting at the coffee shop saying, how do do I handle this issue in dating or in my marriage or with my roommate or with my parents who don't love the Lord and they, they don't support my walk with the Lord? And that ability to intricately apply the word uh, in a unique situation, that's that's a gift too. And so if your pastor isn't knocking it out of the park with amazing illustrations, or if your expectation is that they've got to make you laugh for 25 of 30 minutes, you might have wrong expectations. You might need to check those. The, the Word of God cautions the congregant against just choosing pastors who tickle their ears. What you want more, what you deeply need more, 
is a pastor whose character is strong and you can see that in how they treat people. Mm -hmm. So I would say, don't count yourself not blessed if your pastor isn't killing it with his sermon illustrations or his teaching. Look to see if it's accurate and then look at his life and see if, Mm -hmm. if he's really a good shepherd and a good dad and a good husband. Yeah. Okay. So conversely, let's talk about the young adult who's in a megachurch. Mm-hmm. And maybe they have a, a staff of 10 pastors, mm-hmm. and the pastor that's preaching most Sundays, that's his primary job. And they're realizing that, oh, this isn't a guy that I can just ping and do coffee with at the drop of a hat. So what about expectations there? Like, how should they feel connected to a pastor when they go to a very large church and they just feel like they're kind of, you know, drifting around? Yeah, I mean, I think reality is, like, we all have the same amount of hours in a week. If you go to a church of a 1,000 plus or 3,000 plus, which is, in Colorado Springs, not hard to find, actually, mm-hmm. it's going to be real difficult to nail down the lead preaching pastor on a frequent basis mm-hmm. and maybe to meet them, maybe to spend some interactions with them. But if you want personal discipleship, if 3000 people wanted personal discipleship from that one person, I mean, Moses experienced that his mm-hmm. father-in-law comes in and says, that's not reasonable. You need to set up some other people. And then you look at Ephesians four and what do you have? You have pastors are gifts to the church to equip others to do the ministry. So, If a person has an expectation, I've got to have the senior pastor, the lead pastor in my life in a very consistent way, it could be that you're setting your pastor up to fail you in your expectations. Mm -hmm. I would say not even could be, it's likely. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, well, let's talk about, because again, there are a lot of pastors out there, and I'm not just talking about the specific outliers, the mega pastors, the, you know, the rock stars and all that who've written billions of books and whatnot, but just in general, there are a lot of pastors where um, they're, you know, it's, it's very easy to think that there's amazingness there or, you know, we can follow their Twitter accounts or we see that they've written a book and everyone says it's amazing. But you actually have written a couple articles and we're going to link to them uh, here in these show notes about there are some red flags for looking at pastors. And it's not all if they're shiny and are wearing designer suits, you know, and stuff like that. Um, You need to be really discerning in that. So walk us through a couple things that you would say you should look out for in um, questioning a shepherd of a flock. You know, I think um, there have been so many examples. Um, Again, we have access with the internet to just We know what's going on in small town America to big city. We're hearing almost on a weekly basis of a pastor who fell for some reason. And it could be immorality, but it could also be they just are a bully. And uh, having been a church planner, I I saw the church planning culture. And there are tendencies um, that can be celebrated, you know, very entrepreneurial skills. You need those giftings to start things. um, And starting a church is starting something so you need a skill set like that. But we need the character of Christ. Pastors and, and Christians also, but pastors need to be modeling the character of Christ. And um, in my studies on the New Testament of what are sinful pastors looking like? What, what, what are the common characteristics? Uh, at least three that I found, they look to praise themselves. Um, they they want to elevate themselves. And that, that can be subtle. That can be very overt. Um, it can look like elevating um, yourself by, uh, I, I often would see 
other church planners taking pictures, selfies of themselves in the gym, doing their CrossFit photos. I'm like, you know, I, 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 that's great, I guess, that you're staying healthy, and I'm grateful for that. But, like, why why do you want that to be what you're known for? Mm-hmm. The other thing I would see is jealousy. Uh, and you see that in the New Testament. There was this jealousy that the religious leaders had uh, against Christ or John the Baptist. And that can look like putting other churches or other pastors in the community down to elevate self. But maybe it's also just because you're jealous of their ministry. Maybe they're growing faster than you in numerics. Um, So you see those kinds of things. I think a third one that the New Testament speaks to in multiple manifestations is just the seeking of personal gratification. And that can be gluttony, drunkenness, greed, sexual abuse. The entire letter of Jude is about sinful pastors who've snuck into the church and then just used the people. They just used them. And for all sorts of things, including uh, greed, food, sex, all of it. And Jude's caution is to get out of the situation, stay in the love of Christ, don't abandon the church, don't just have this experience where the pastor turned out to be a horrible, in some cases, just non-Christian who was using everybody. But don't abandon the church as a response to it. Go and save other people from that situation. All that to say is those three things, praising self, jealousy, and looking for personal gratification, those will manifest, and those are things to not emulate. Yeah, for sure. Well, I know you have said, um, and I need you to restate this uh, statistic of what the average tenure of a pastor is, because I would like you to talk a little bit to what are some of the common struggles that we're seeing with pastors in the church? And it doesn't have to be, we know, I mean, at Focus on the Family, we have heard that there are pastors that call in one of the top topics is pornography Mm -hmm. use and whatever. So that's a personal struggle. But then there's just some like malaise. I mean, I know a number of pastors who post COVID were like, uh, time to hang it up. I'm done. And so talk a little bit about what, you know, statistically, what are we looking at as far as how long a pastor serves, either in general or in a given church? Mm-hmm. And then what are some of the reasons behind that? Yeah. And I think there's unique uh, numbers, I think, for different roles, youth pastors, church mm-hmm. planners. But um, the last numbers I saw were 50 percent of pastors only last five years. Eighty percent are out of the ministry after 10 years. Wow. Um, when I was a youth pastor, there was think the average was two years youth ministry and then church planners i think it can be three years Mm. um you talked about pornography but i think 30 barnett did a research in 2016 that said 35 percent of youth pastors and senior pastors were actively involved in pornography Mm. so those are just some of the stats i've heard but when you talk about the difficulties facing pastors speaking of that barna research some of that's personal sin right it's hard to stay faithful Uh, to a ministry when you're not faithful in your heart towards the Lord, right? Mm -hmm. So some of that we have to say, like, our our pastors are not walking with the Lord well, and so they're not going to have longevity in ministry. That's some of it. But I think for most pastors, the other 65%, they're seeking to honor the Lord, and there's all sorts of challenges. There's political divisions. Those are becoming more and more divisive in the church as well, not just what we see Mm -hmm. on the news. Mm -hmm. That partisan divide is getting wider. Uh, We see isolation. That's been there. I mean, that's one of the top issues that pop up in Lifeway research is pastors feel isolated. They feel like their families are isolated. They can't, there's expectations of pastors and their families to have everything together. And so they end up, so not to let people down, not letting them in on the struggles they have. So there's an isolation built off a false premise that they're not sinful too. And that, that drives things. 
you know, everyone's situation is unique. Um, sometimes health issues take people out, but, but I think that isolation issue is a big one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so true. So, okay, so let's talk about, um, in light of that, kind of what would you say are, it's almost awkward because, I mean, that I'm thinking of like the 20-something who's listening. Like, how do they know? I mean, it's not just a 20-something can't walk up to their pastor and be like, um, do you have appropriate, like margin and accountability in your life and whatever like how do we how can we ensure that pastors have a support structure around them and they're going after personal holiness and they're you know without doing like a state of my church report every year where we take the reins and make it happen yeah i mean i don't want to encourage anybody to go on like the sin hunt to mm-hmm. see if your pastor's legit yeah. um i wouldn't want to go that direction but i think one we can be praying for our pastors praying for our leaders. That's a, that's a call of the scriptures that mm-hmm. we should be thinking about them. Um, but I think we have eyes and ears too. And so when your pastor, my pastor did this just this week, we have moved into a new building. It's a little larger and the community is filling it. It is, it is just every week we have 150 plus children. And this particular Sunday, our youth ministry is on their winter retreat. And therefore there's a, a vacuum now. We need more workers. So he asked that question. If I hear a need like that presented and I ignore that, then I'm not helping him. I'm stressing him out. So I think be aware of the needs being presented. I think jump in, serve, serve regularly even, right, uh, faithfully. So that would be one. Um, I think you can't know what you don't know and you're only responsible for what you do know. And if you're not sure where your pastor's at, don't feel like you have to have this intimate knowledge of everybody's sin struggles and what's going on. But as you see things, don't ignore them. Mm-hmm. And, and so as an example of this, um, there was a, a pastor I knew. He was he had a history of being harsh with people, um, using profanity and, and just getting in people's faces and raising his voice. And people kind of said, well, he, that's his tendency. That's He's more passionate. They kind of excused it away. I think over time what I saw was that got worse and real sin was excused and not addressed when it was visible Mm -hmm. and in the name of overlooking a sin. Interestingly, when does God overlook our sins when he's already forgiven them, which means we've confessed them. So if you have a pastor who's identifying, like you you see sin in their life and they're not dealing with it, like you you need to help them deal with that. Mm -hmm. And it's appropriate to talk to them. Yeah. I think that's probably why it's also helpful. I mean, not that we have to like go into every, you know, possible uh, structure for a church, but I think that's why it's so helpful too to have things like elder boards and realizing that, you know, look at a church and and if the pastor is the only controlling interest in the church, That's that's probably a concern because every pastor we know scripturally should have those brothers around him that are basically guiding, directing, speaking into, you know. There's health in in plurality because you can have accountability, right? And so you have to have qualified people. The New Testament talks all about that. Paul talks about qualities that are essential for elders, whether they're or or pastors or whatever term you use in your tribe, but there's qualified people who are working with qualified people. And if there's just one, that's a dangerous situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Okay, so kind of in our last couple minutes here, tell us a little bit about the Focus Pastor, what the mission is of this particular ministry, what you're accomplishing now, what you're hoping to accomplish, and really how we can be praying for you. Yeah, in short, the Focus Pastor is about helping pastors, their families, and the church. The way we have been doing that most recently is we are creating articles that speak to the soul, the role, and the family of the pastor. So there are simply unique challenges of a pastor and his vocation and his family. They're under just unique situation. And um, so we're trying to have veteran pastors and veteran theologians, people who've been faithful for a long time. Uh, write to these issues, speak to these issues on our YouTube channel. So we're doing interviews. And really, in some ways for me, it's the questions I wish I could have asked when I was planting the church, you know, almost 10 years ago, Mm -hmm. sitting down with guys like Paul Tripp, Bob Lapine, and saying, okay, I'm about to do this. How should I do it in the right way? Even the other day, Bob Lapine said to me, uh, or I was telling him that when I went to go plant the church with my wife, She was willing, but not excited. Mm -hmm. And he just gave this great advice. He said, you know, if I was with you 10 years ago, what I would have said is pastoring is very hard. That's a challenge. And you're taking on that challenge. But if you bring your wife into that, when she's willing, but not excited, you're taking on an additional challenge you don't need. And so just talking to Mm -hmm. these veteran pastors and theologians to speak to that. And then we have over 40 authors that are pastors writing to topics that are unique about the family of a pastor or the soul of a pastor and just trying to encourage those uh, those folks in ministry today. Super. So really, anyone listening can tell their pastor about this resource, and we'll make sure that we have it linked as well. Absolutely. Um, and that's great. So uh, hop over, you guys, to the show notes uh, to this week's episode, and you'll see, um, tell your pastor and pastors, you know, the staff at your church about the focused pastor, um, because really, they've got a lot of stuff going on. So Well, Josh, um, thank you so much. I'm going to go ahead and um, give some info here. I would love, you know, we just talked about the Focus Pastor. Go to Boundless.org, search for 786, this week's episode, and uh, you can get in touch, really, or your pastor can, even by calling 800, the letter A, and the word family. That's another great opportunity for them to get some additional info. So, Josh, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Lisa. I cannot blame you for the Folks, as we open up our inbox, we always love it when one of our counselors can come down and answer our question for us. And this week is no exception. We have counselor Tim Sanford here. Hey, Tim. It's good to be here. 
good to have you back. Okay, well, um, let's go ahead and dive into this one because this has uh, some different facets to it. So our listener is asking, is choosing singleness to avoid the troubles of marriage biblical? I feel I have the appropriate appreciation for matrimony and understand God's good purposes for it. But the Bible also says that those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you this. And I've had enough trouble in my life, particularly due to my poor mental health. I've had depression for several years, which at times has incapacitated me to the point of not being able to move. And I'm concerned that undertaking the responsibility of being a good helpmate, even with the help of the Holy Spirit, would be unwise given how severe my depression can get. This one's real hard, Lisa. So what do you think? <laughs> I I feel like, I mean, I don't think that there's anything prescriptive about like you have to get married. So I'm like, I feel like there's a lot of freedom in this. But what about you? What's well, your... th- there is because the Bible gives valid reasons both for marriage and singleness. So it's yeah. not a biblically right, biblically wrong issue here. What I see in this is actually two things. One is, yes, there's the depression that's here. Mm-hmm. I'll address that in a second. The other thing that I see is possibly some anxiousness and mm-hmm. some worry, worry that I'll have more troubles than I can handle, worry that I won't be a good helpmate like I want to be. Mm-hmm. So there's some worry here possibly as well. So mm-hmm. I think those are the two big issues. So where I would start with really is actually the listener didn't say whether they've actually talked to a therapist yet with their depression, but I would start there mm-hmm. and look at both the depression side of things as well as the anxiety side of things. Quite frequently, they go together, Lisa. Mm-hmm. And anymore, what we're looking at, we used to think of depression as that's the problem. Mm-hmm. What we're seeing now is depression is actually more of a symptom of something else. So part of what therapy is doing is looking at what's behind the depression or what may be causing the depression. It may also be causing the anxiety. So that's where I would start and encourage this person to go first. And with that, then maybe a lot of this can be resolved, both the depression and maybe the anxiety part as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point because I think, I mean, obviously this listener, um, whoever they are, you know, it's not, you don't want to say, okay, well, the one thing I have to do is get married because that's going to solve my depression or, but on the flip side, you don't want to say, well, I'm just going to be a burden. I mean, we're all, we're going to have troubles and people, there are mental health struggles on any end of the relationship spectrum. And so to not use it as either a limiting factor or carte blanche of just let me get into any relationship I can. Well, exactly. And, and yes, there is some legitimate you know, wisdom, and I don't want to be added burden onto somebody else for the rest of their life. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some good thought put into that. Again, there's some anxiety, though, because anxiety always focuses on the future, and this listener is looking forward and not dealing with here, now, today, present tense. Mm-hmm. What am I doing with the depression that I have to live with? What am I doing maybe about the anxiety behind it, and what's behind either one or both of these? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's a good, good point. And I think uh, the wisdom to go ahead and make sure that there's some solid, um, you know, biblically based and professional therapy that this person can access. Um, I think that's a great starting point. And again, I always say any getting any objective eyes on what you're doing to not live in isolation is a great start too. Well, for sure, for sure. 
Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Tim. And uh, as always, we really appreciate that. And I was saying to Tim before we started taping that we've really had a lot more questions uh, that deal with mental health struggles and issues, especially in recent years. And so I want to remind everyone that we do have this team of counselors that Tim is part of here at Focus on the Family, and they are available to do a complimentary consultation for those of you who may have heard this response today and you're like, I feel like I could be in that boat or I definitely know that I struggle in this area. And so definitely give us a call, uh, 1-800-THE-LETTER-A, the word family, and you can just ask to speak to a counselor. They have got a great uh, arsenal of resources, recommendations, all kinds of things like that, as as well as a comprehensive list of um, vetted counselors that could be in your area that they could introduce you to, and maybe you can get some continued care there. Also, if you go to focusonthefamily.com slash get help, that will give you um, via an online portal uh, the opportunity to access a lot of this as well. So again, Tim, thanks for weighing in. It's great to be back. All right, folks. Well, that is it for this week's show. Um, Again, we do want to hear from you. So whether or not you're calling us for a counseling consult or to get resources or advice, or you just want to say hello, um, you know, go ahead and do that. You know that if you want to reach out to us here at Boundless, just write to editor at boundless.org. And I will see you around next week. This is Lisa Anderson for The Boundless Show. The Boundless Show is a production of boundless.org. Focus on the family.